Live from the Livingston campus of Rutgers University. This is RLC WVPH in Piscataway. 90.3 The Core. Independent community radio from Piscataway High School and Rutgers University. Learn more at thecore.fm. Many voices. One station. This is 90.3 The Core. Hello, and welcome to Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum here at 90.3 The Core. So two weeks ago, the Rutgers chapter of the American Association of University Professors and American Federation of Teachers voted in favor of authorizing a strike. While this move sent shockwaves throughout the campus community, with many people wondering what was next, the news also highlighted for students and community members what many Rutgers faculty already know that there are systemic issues with how the university's administration operates. In addition, this development has been a long time in the making. Since July of last year, faculty, staff, and graduate students have been working without a contract. The university and the various teachers' unions have been bargaining since last March, with the administration initially agreeing to only bargain for eight hours a month and initially entirely excluding grad students from the bargaining process. If the strike does occur, it would be the first time a strike has happened in the 253-year history of Rutgers. Professor Deepa Kumar, president of Rutgers AAUP-AFT, defines this fight by saying, quote, we are fighting to defend quality public higher education. And this is not just about the faculty and graduate students. This is about our students. Today, we are joined by three members of Rutgers AAUP-AFT. Tony Shimbrot is Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Rutgers, New Brunswick. Professor Shimbrot is a physicist by training and has also studied topics in neuroscience, pharmaceutical engineering, and astrophysics. He serves as a representative to the Executive Council of the Rutgers AAUP-AFT Grad Faculty Union, and he's a member of the University Senate. Teresa Politano is a president of the part-time faculty chapter at Rutgers University. She's an author, restaurant critic, and former newsroom executive. Politano is a part-time faculty member with distinction in the Department of Journalism Media Studies on the New Brunswick campus. And Sway Smith is a graduate assistant and PhD student in American Studies at Rutgers University, Newark. In the academic offseason, she still lives and works in reforestation in northern British Columbia. Thank you all for coming here. Thank you very much. Um, So, of course, many students and community members are on the edge of their seats right now, wondering what is going to come in the next few weeks. But before we get to, like, the strike discussion and all of these new developments, I really want to address what you guys are trying to demand from the university in terms of grievances and the issues that you see with administration. Um, And probably one of the biggest ones is job security. And Troy... um, you wrote an op-ed in the Targum in December of last year, um, and one quote from that piece that I thought stood out was, quote, anyone who participates in a course with the TA, does research with the GA, or interacts with a graduate fellow should offer them a personal apology as one human being to another on behalf of an, of, of an administration that plainly lacks the capacity for shame to do so itself. And one of the main concerns that has been raised is how Rutgers is currently exploiting a vast contingent labor force in the form of part-time lecturers who lack adequate support and access to a living wage. And Rutgers currently has the highest percentage of part-time lecturers among all Big Ten schools and exceeds the next closest school by over 17%. And despite increases in enrollment, Rutgers has dramatically lowered the number of teaching assistants and graduate assistants as well. Um, And Teresa, I understand that you are currently holding office hours out of the basement of the Sky Building. So you don't have an office right now. Is that correct? 
Well, actually, that's a funny question because I've never been to the basement of this guy building, and I might find that frightening. Um, I don't. I'm not sure if there uh, if there is a basement there, but uh, but it's an excellent point, James, because um, what does happen is that I hold office hours uh, everywhere, and I've met with students at the coffee shop and in the library and by phone and by email. Um, in order to uh, support and answer their questions. Um, and what we are fighting for is, uh, is that kind of support because um, uh, without the support of the administration, um, we're not able to offer support to our students. And the students, in my experience, are uh, amazing, um, hardworking, Many of them are first-generation college students. Uh, some of them have uh, just overwhelming issues. One of my students was um, uh, concer- is a DACA student and uh, was concerned about deportation. I had a student last semester who had um, uh, a friend who was shot. So people are dealing with real issues. They come to Rutgers. They're very hardworking. They're... Um, very smart and very practical and sometimes I fear that we're failing them because the people in front of the classroom are not supported. So our fight is for support for those people, um, the PTLs or the adjunct faculty at Rutgers. Uh, We don't have sick days, you know, we don't have maternity leave, uh, we don't have office space for the most part, Um, and the support for those people will translate as support for the student. Mm-hmm. And Soy Lee, um, grad students, I understand, have not had a raise since 2013, if I'm being correct. Yeah, you are correct. Okay. Um, we, we haven't had a raise since 2013. Um, we were sort of given an, in, an exchange of a raise, um, a, a particular kind of funding that you could apply for um, for the summer months. But um, they've uh, since dissolved that. So now we're we're really we're really in the lurch, and and if you think about um, cost of living increases, we're now or or where with inflation, we're now um, without a raise this year. We're we're currently sitting at a twenty six hundred dollar pay cut essentially. Wow. So it's it's more important than ever that we that we fight for a good raise this mm-hmm. time because we're I mean we. We can't afford to live yeah. at this point. And recent research has shown actually that um, grad students and PhD students suffer from high rates of depression and anxiety compared to the general population. Um, and Teresa, you can jump in on this too. What has your general experience been like living with these kind of conditions and being able to like teach and work in this kind of environment? Well, I can certainly respond to the mental health component. Um, mental health is a is a huge struggle. Uh, for graduate workers in particular. Um, But I mean, I think mental health is important for everyone. Mm -hmm. But um, I guess a personal story for me um, is I I have an anxiety disorder and I had to go without my meds for a week because I was in the negative in my bank account. Um, This that happened this semester. So it's it's a the illusion that this is merely about um, stodgy, privileged professors <laughs> looking for a raise is exactly that. It's an illusion. There's a lot of us who are really fighting for for basic living. 
Um, thanks, James. I think um, uh, the concern with the adjunct faculty is that I think most people believe or had the experience that these are were or are occasional employees, that an adjunct faculty, uh, a person who teaches uh, part-time at, at a university is someone who has a job elsewhere or maybe they're doing it sort of as a feather in their cap. But what has happened is that occasional employee has become the workforce. And so now we've moved from about 800 um, uh, part-time faculty members at Rutgers to 3,000. So, so now you have a whole sort of class of people who are working as part-time faculty members and what many of our um, uh, members are doing is work, they're working two or three or four different uh, part-time jobs, whether at Rutgers or at other schools. Um, so it's not sort of this occasional uh, uh, workforce, it has become the workforce. And this is, this is an uber approach to higher ed. Uh, but what it means for us is that we're constantly moving from one freelance uh, assignment to another. We're, we're therefore, you know, uh, uh, we have constant demands on our time and, um, and therefore just are not able physically uh, to be there for the student, um, and we're you know we're cobbling together uh, some sort of living, pulling pulling all these different salaries together in the hopes that maybe this is enough to get by. So that's what's going on. It's not necessarily that um, uh, you know the the many of us are familiar with the adjunct faculty structure, but m many of us are not aware that it's just exploded um, recently, and that this has become. The, the process by which Rutgers is uh, handling its core responsibility, which is to teach the student. Mm -hmm. So if you have a 70, I mean, look, we understand that any um, uh, organization needs to be flexible, but we have now a 70% workforce that is quote unquote flexible. So that's a little, it's a little high. Yeah. I, I would uh, also highlight the, um, the, I guess relationship too between graduate workers and and uh, and the PTL plight or what we can call the adjunctification of the professoriate. Um, the a lot of us are are staring into uh, walking into a a a work a work situation or a labor situation where we are going to be the next generation of PTLs. This is we're not we're not necessarily as they shrink tenure track uh, or tenure lines. We are going to move from our in-debt graduate worker salary to the PTL in-debt <laughs> salary and uh, and that 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 uh, frightens a lot of us as well as um, hiring us as, as part-time lecturers is one way that that underfunded departments get around um, giving not having enough TA ships to give to the graduate workers that they're coming in so there's many graduate workers who are PTLs and and they're a part of this fight through through the PTL chapter. So we're we we stand especially in solidarity with our with our PTL um, comrades and fellows. Yeah, and those three thousand new uh, PTLs you were talking about, they're doing about I I think fifty percent of the course load in the university, but only represent about one percent of what the university compensates in teachers. Um, so Troy, you've been at Rutgers I think for about. 
20 years, if I'm correct? Yeah, a little more than that. So have you noticed this kind of development and how PTLs have exploded in this way? Yeah, very definitely. So uh, both Rutgers and uh, all universities and colleges have have undergone uh, very strange change, which I find difficult to understand uh, over the past 20 or more years. So I went to a little college in Oregon in 1974, and at that time, <clears throat> there was one president and two deans and a few secretaries, and that was the extent of the administration. <clears throat> I brought my son to that college to look, you know, to see if he wanted to go uh, to college there. And uh, they had a whole army of vice presidents. Um, and, and the same thing has happened at Rutgers. So there are more than 240 uh, vice presidents, vice chancellors, vice provosts, this is and that's is, who, who make more than a quarter of a million dollars a year. And, and I just want to pause to think about that because these are people who do not teach and who do not do research. And they are getting a, you know, a composite of $80 million a year. And, and you know how this came to pass is, is is a very strange thing, and I think that the way that it came to pass is that there's a large amount of money that is involved in bringing in funds, <coughs> excuse me, for research and in uh, teaching tuition and and so forth, and this class of people you know who could ordinarily have done something useful by teaching <laughs> uh, moved into this 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 gap and started paying themselves this vast amount of money now about uh, 15 years ago uh, there was a report called vulnerable to abuse that I invite your listeners to look up and it discussed precisely the issue of uh, corruption at Rutgers. So we are in New Jersey. There is, of course, some corruption in New Jersey. We know that. And there was a report done by the state of New Jersey on corruption at Rutgers. And one of the recommendations that they made specifically was that there be an independent committee that established the salaries and numbers of vice presidents and and, and executives of that kind. Several of the recommendations of this vulnerable to abuse report were taken seriously that was totally ignored mm-hmm. right so right now we have uh, vice presidents and so forth who who earn more than three quarters of a million dollars a year uh, what exactly it is they do isn't clear but <laughs> nevertheless there, there is nobody independent who says well you know, this is what you do of value to the students and to the, the, the enterprise of, of research and teaching at Rutgers, and this is what it's worth. Instead, they decide amongst themselves what it is that they are worth, and that's what they get. And that's been a real change in the past 20 years or so. And without <clears throat> standing up against it, and the union is the only entity that, that, that appears able to do that, without standing up against it, I see that as just progressing. And as uh, Teresa and Soily just mentioned, you know, TAs and part-time lecturers do not earn three-quarters of a million dollars. You can get (laughs) a lot of PTLs for three-quarters of a million dollars, and you can stop hiring professors, and that is what has happened, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a matter of economics. Yeah. 
Yeah, Teresa, you can jump in on this. Yeah, that's, you know, I just wanted to expand on that. Those were excellent points, uh, Troy. But, um, you know, I think the common uh, uh, or commonly heard narrative is that, oh, those teacher salaries are what makes Rutgers so expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of people would be very surprised to learn that the instructional budget at Rutgers hovers around 17 or 18 percent. So that's what's happening. And the PTL budget, the budget, you know, uh, for for adjunct faculty is less than 1 percent. It's 0.8 percent. So to say, oh, you know, it's teacher salaries that that are behind uh, the high cost of tuition at Rutgers is entirely wrong. And I think it's really important that we start to look at some of these inflated, uh, uh, this inflated bureaucracy that has been created around the university um, and uh, and to start to deal with uh, that structure, which, you know, systemically, the structure of the university, I think, is what's causing a lot of these problems. <laughs> I would uh, I, I would add too if if students are are thinking about this in particular about when they're thinking about their tuition and where their money's going and and what's happening with adjuncts where adjuncts are teaching at multiple schools um, so I call them full time part time lecturers mm-hmm. um, they they're piecing together full time work through these different um, schools so your professor who is teaching you this course at this school costs you apparently this much money. Um, that same professor is teaching at the community college, same course for less tuition. And it's the same professor, same course, different schools, different amounts of money are going into it. And that's kind of the jig that that students are dealing with um, or students are facing as they're going in. As, as the workforce becomes um, adjunctified, as, the, as their teaching becomes adjunctified and adjuncts have to split themselves across these different schools, you have to start asking, why is my tuition higher here and not there? Where is the money going here if, if, if I'm paying them 2 to 4% more every year? Yeah, I think you're all highlighting some really good issues in terms of pay equity. Um, and we'll go into more detail about that after this quick break. Until further notice, this is still 90.3 The Core. And welcome back to 90.3 The Core. This is Core of the Matter. We're here with three representatives from Rutgers AAUP, Troy Schrimbrot, Teresa Palatano, and Sway Smith. Um, and before we were just highlighting some really important issues in terms of pay equity and the differences um, and grievances that part-time lecturers are raising um, in terms of compensation. Um, and another big issue too is that faculty at Camden and Newark are actually paid less on, on average than faculty at New Brunswick. And um, salary compression has put a lot of long-term faculty behind newer faculty in terms of compensation. And while management salaries have exploded at four times the national average since the last contract signing, when you factor in the cost of living in this area, Rutgers faculty experience the lowest salaries in the Big Ten. and with um, research conducted by the union showing that, um, on average, instructor salaries have actually dropped over this time period um, with the rising costs of living. Um, so, what do, so, Troy, what do you see as the main problems facing long-term faculty, and what is this group of um, teachers trying to address in this strike negotiation? 
So two things. I just want to point out that you don't have to go to Newark or Camden. Uh, Cook College professors are paid significantly less than professors on other campuses as well, and that's <clears throat> a serious problem. I think that, that the, the long-term issue for faculty is elimination, mm-hmm. right, just as a matter of economics. So I, I want to pause to think about that. Uh, there are at least two departments on campus, physics and gender studies, that use graduate assistants to teach entire courses. That is, there is no professor involved. Well, we have students who are going into debt to pay tuition, and they are being taught by other students, right? So that's the extreme of of how far the administration is apparently perfectly willing to go to to impoverish the, the the teaching mission of the university and if that is allowed to continue why would they ever pay anybody full-time salary plus benefits when they could pay them instead a few thousand dollars a course i mean why would they do that if if they're only interested in the economics and so i see the long-term uh a prognosis as very poor unless we support these kinds of union activities. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, you're getting to like what you attribute the gap between the administration and teachers. You say it's economics. Do you see any other drivers of this gap besides just the pure need for profit? Um, other than, you know, what else do you attribute? Do you think besides just economics? Or is it you just think it's the driving profit structure? I think it's just economics, and we see that not, by the way, just in universities. We see that also in nonprofits. So I'll mm-hmm. give you just one other example. <clears throat> uh, when I go to a scientific conference, I have to raise the funds to pay for you know the, the conference admission and membership in the society and so forth, and that amounts to typically a few hundred dollars. Right. There is an organization called the, the NACUBO, National Association of College and University Business Officers, that we have members of our administration that go to, and they pay $8,000 apiece to attend these conferences. Where does that money come from? The answer is it comes from tuition. Right. So they have no problem just saying, oh, well, I need $8,000 here. I'll take it. <coughs> I have to raise it, right? And and the, the the same is true across the board, right? They they simply have pots of money, and we can maybe get into how they they do their financial uh, arrangements. But uh, I view this as purely economic. There are pots of money. It's nice to have pots of money. I like to have pots of money. And yep. when there are pots of money, and there's nobody looking over your shoulder, why wouldn't you take eight thousand dollars to go to a conference? Yeah, and we can get into that in terms of pots of money because um, in 2017, the administration transferred nearly $12 million in student fees to the athletics department. Um, And the athletics deficit has grown to nearly $200 million under President Barchi's term. Um, So why why does the administration, you think, continue to overfund the athletics department at the expense of academics? Yeah, I'd like to actually comment on that uh, because not only have they used student fees, they they used $14 million a few years ago from auxiliary enterprises. What are auxiliary enterprises? Auxiliary enterprises are money that students and their parents pay for room and board. Right, so this came up at a Board of Governors meeting, and it was slightly contentious, but it was ultimately passed. 
They took $14 million that you would pay for room and board, and they just shipped it off. Now, I, I think a second point that is worth emphasizing is this money is not going to the student athletes. <laughs> the student athletes are unpaid, right? The athletics department is headed by a guy named Hobbs who makes $834,000 a year. He has 331 people working for him. That's larger than the entire school of engineering. And those are the people who are getting those millions of dollars that come from student fees and so forth. It is not the student athletes. So next time you go to a basketball game or, or, or whatnot, you should cheer the student athletes, but you should jeer the people who are, again, <laughs> profiting from them. I, I would like to add to that, too, um, in that um, I'm a former college athlete. Um, I, I played basketball for my undergrad university. And the <laughs> I, I think that often what happens with students is the conversation around it seems to be, um, the the money being spent on the athletes themselves. The athletes are who are are sucking the money, and no, the athletes are not sucking the money. It actually does not cost the university money to remit tuition for somebody. Um, that's a some something. It, it's not costing them that much more to have those bodies in the classroom because, as we can see, they're not paying the professors anyway. So, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's really when you when you look at at where the money is going for athletics, it's going to I think they were advertising their $10 million uh, changing room for football. There's, uh, I guess, rumblings about a private, private jet. Jets, yes. That there's <laughs> that there's going to be a private jet. I mean, if the private jet's available for us to attend conferences, that would be great too. <laughs> but it's 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 that same thing where it's like they're saying that money is going to paying professors. They say money goes to these athletes. That's not who's getting it. There are people, administrative people up top who are, I think, the football coaches make two million. Is that something? One of the football coaches yeah. makes two million a year. The highest paid, one of the highest paid state employees in in the state. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, I think it's important to, in in this entire conversation. I mean, we shouldn't be talking about profit. You know, some business, some you know, universities should not be for profit, and um, neither should we. You know, just like prisons and uh, healthcare, shouldn't should. Should not. This is not our goal to turn a profit every quarter, and this sort of corporate approach to the university is very damaging. And we're forgetting, you know, we're forgetting the 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 great common good that Rutgers offers the community here, the communities in Camden and in Newark, the entire state, and the obligation, frankly, that we have to the the students in this state, which is what the university was uh, uh, and should be all about, you know, that, that there is kind of an elevated purpose here and the purpose of the university is not to turn a profit every quarter. Yeah. Definitely some great points raised. We're going to come back and talk about um, another big issue that's being raised, which is diversity among faculty at Rutgers. And we'll be back just after this. Thanks for staying tuned to 90.3 The Core, and now The Core Community Calendar. The Women in the Arts exhibition, which displays work by notable women artists, runs until April 7th at the Farmstead Arts Center in Basking Ridge. Sunday, March 31st, the mid-century New Jersey exhibit opens at the Cornelius Lau House in Piscataway. This exhibit runs until June 28th. Now stay tuned, more great core radio is on the way. 
Yeah. And we're back here on 90.3 The Core. This is Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum right here at 90.3 The Core. Today we are talking with three representatives from Rutgers AAUP about their grievances with administration and the recent strike developments that have happened. Um, Troy Schrimbrot, Teresa Palatano, and Lee Smith are here with us. Thank you again for joining us. Um, so another major issue that's been raised by the union is addressing diversity within the university. Um, and 20 years ago, white men held the majority of tenured positions, um, and today they still do. Um, and while contingent faculty have higher levels of gender equity, there are significant issues with racial diversity among faculty, especially tenured faculty. And the percentage of African-American faculty has actually dropped since 1997. And the percentage of Latinx faculty has only risen slightly. And while President Barchi has announced a funding initiative to address diversity, the details of this program have been extremely vague and the problem still continues to plague the university. And the union has actually found, I think, that the administration may not even be collecting accurate and complete data on diversity among faculty, or at least is not making that information public. Um, so what do you see as the root causes of the lack of diversity among faculty? Anybody can jump in here. Yeah, so so this is <clears throat> excuse me. This is of course not not a a simple question, but uh, I'll, I'll give you a point of reference. So um, I'm in the School of Engineering, and in the School of Engineering, uh, we have a Medal of Engineering as well as other awards that are given to outstanding uh, people who have come through or who who have influenced the university. And in, in the past 14 years, all 14 of the Medal of Excellences went to white men. Now, I, I know the Dean of Engineering, and he's, he's a very well-meaning person, and he really supports diversity. But the fact is that the people who are choosing these candidates for the Medal of Engineering are largely white men. And speaking as a white man, man, I can tell you that, you know, I am going to choose people who I know. And those people who I know have, because of the way that our society is structured, they tend to look like me. And it isn't that I am trying to be racist, but there's a lot of implicit bias that just comes with the territory. And to change that implicit bias, we have to first become aware of it, and second, we have to deliberately, and this takes effort, it doesn't happen on its own, it doesn't come from above, we have to deliberately include people who do not look like us, mm -hmm. who might know other people who do not look like us to, to include in the process. And without doing that, without active effort and work, it, it just isn't going to happen. I mean, that's part of what uh, what we're bargaining over right now is the, I think we have several fellowships, the Paul Robeson fellowships for, to, for grad uh, students from historically underrepresented or marginalized communities. Um, this is a topic that's, that's especially, or, or maybe um, really close to the heart of everyone in Newark, um, that it is really important, um, particularly I think it's the 50th anniversary of the black student organization's uh, takeover of Conklin Hall um, demanding uh, more black faculty and, and the admittance of more black students. Um, and and I think that it what is at the heart for for everyone in Newark is that is that um, the community doesn't stop at the doors of the university, that that everyone has an opportunity to to enter and get in. And I think 
again, it is about the prioritization of our resources. So it's it's not enough to to uh, throw a couple of dollars at a pseudo committee to study diversity. We have the stats. Stats are in. Um, it is now time for administration to put um, actual money behind recruiting and retaining uh, faculty of color behind recruiting and retaining students of color. And if that's um, if they don't prioritize that with their budget and instead prioritize, I guess, their own salaries, then I, I think that that lets you know uh, administratively where they stand on that issue. Can I, can I just add briefly to that? Uh, one of the things that the union has called for is a Paul Robeson fund <clears throat> of, I think it is $20 million to, to bring in uh, underrepresented minorities into the faculty. Um, President Barchi has said that he supports this in principle. He said that many times. There is $783 million in liquid unrestricted reserves that the university has. There seems to be an impasse over bargaining for reasons that we don't quite understand. Why doesn't he simply say, okay, I'll, I'll put $20 million of this $783 million into this Paul Robeson fund. It's a win-win for everybody. I don't understand why he says, oh, no, 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 we, let's not do that anymore. You have the money. There's something that we all support, that we all say we support. Let's just do it. Oh, these are these are excellent points. Um, uh, I'd like to mention that as uh, uh, president of the part-time faculty union, you know the most uh, the least paid members <laughs> here are obviously the most diverse. So we have many issues. I think our issue uh, primarily is 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 we'd like to be at the table, and by that I mean, you know, what happens for an adjunct. Um, uh, professor is that we come in, we teach the class, and we leave. We don't interact with other faculty members. We don't interact with the chair or the dean. We're not integrated into the university at large. We're not aware of the goals and mission of the department. And not only that, uh, they don't get to see us and see our strengths and say, hey, you know, maybe this person would be perfect in this role and should be moved into a different position or, or what have you. So um, uh, this is a little bit tricky because um, many times our members are, are told, hey, you'd like to sit on a committee, um, do some uh, service work for the department. We'd welcome that, but we can't pay you yeah. for that. And so um, in order to become visible, we have to to sort of lean in, so to speak, and uh, with some sort of vague promise that perhaps somewhere down the road, eventually, uh, maybe uh, something will turn up and perhaps maybe you can uh, move into a higher role in the department. What we're fighting for in this particular contract for part-time faculty is a clear and direct career path so we will be visible, so we can move up, so we can't, you know, be kind of the same employee year after year. I represent uh, a number of people who have, you know, worked for Rutgers for 20 years and who are appointed semester by semester, and they're not assured semester by semester whether they'll have a job. Um, and the university says we couldn't possibly make that kind of commitment to you when in reality 
the commitment is there. The employee has been uh, reappointed time and again. Um, and yet there's an unwillingness or an inability on the university's part to put that in writing, you know, to make that commitment and say, you know, we value you. Obviously, we value you. You've been here 20 years. We like what you're you're doing. So um, this is a particularly difficult uh, uh, navigation for us. And I think it's important to remember, you know, again, uh, we're the least paid, so obviously we're the most diverse, and this is the first step toward fixing it. If you talk about inequality at Rutgers, this is the deepest, most offensive inequality, the gap between the part-time instructor in front of the classroom and the full-time instructor in front of the classroom is tremendous. And many, many of our um, part-time faculty have PhDs, and many of them have taught for years. So they have the experience, they are the face of Rutgers, uh, and yet uh, the pay is just, you know, we're talking about poverty wages here. Yeah. I think that that's, um, that's such a good point, too, that um, we, I don't know if Rutgers has clear stats on the diversity of its faculty, but um, we, we also want to make sure, it, it, Teresa's point is really important, that when we raise up those of us that are being treated the worst in terms of working conditions, um, that that's also going to uh, sharpen our struggle in those other areas, too. So it, it makes it less possible to be, explo- to be particularly exploiting faculty of color to when we make sure that that the PTL that there's not a place for them to be exploited. Yeah. That 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 position raises up higher. Yeah, I think that like nuance in the demand really highlights the intersection of marginalized identities and economic exploitation mm-hmm. within the university and its structure. Um, so another major issue too would be um, healthcare and education that the union is raising. And under the Christie administration, healthcare costs for faculty members have risen dramatically. Um, Governor Christie signed legislation in 2011 that barred unions from organizing over healthcare costs for a period of time. That period is now expired. Um, so what is the union demanding for in terms of healthcare for faculty and also adjunct faculty as well? I mean, I think adjunct faculty are at the heart of this um, because they do not have health insurance. Um, At at least my PTL colleagues, that is, that is their, their greatest fight. And one of their greatest fears is, um, and because many of them often transition out of graduate school and if they had a TA ship, they, they did have health insurance. Um, But then once you become a fellow, you don't have health insurance. So that all, that's another thing with, with, with grads that's of, uh, of concern. Um, not all graduate workers have health insurance. It depends on your particular classification. Um, and you can go in and out of that year to year. Your TA ship might be a year. You might not get it the next year. They might put you on fellowship. But I think, especially with the PTLs, it is a, it is a major concern. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I think this is a, an, a tremendously important point. And, uh, you know, Rutgers has positioned itself as a leader in healthcare has positioned itself as a champion of uh, community health programs, and yet there are seven thousand employees at Rutgers who are who do not qualify for health benefits. So what what's happening? What's clearly obvious is that the university is deliberately keeping people below that threshold in order to not offer them 
health benefits. And to me, this is a particular embarrassment, and uh, the university should be ashamed. Um, we have in my um, uh, unit people, again, who've taught 20 years, who teach three, four, five, six classes uh, uh, a year, who have no uh, opportunity, f- you know, no health care. Yeah. We have no uh, sick days. We have no maternity leave. Um, and, and these are the people in front of the classroom, and I just don't understand why uh, this is permissible. Yeah. And it's such a big contradiction, too, because we have one of the best pharmaceutical programs in the country, <laughs> one of the best nursing programs in the country, and we can't provide for our own employees. So yeah. just an incredible like, hypocrisy there, definitely. Um, and the union has also advocated for a $15 minimum wage for students and for part-time workers as well in the university. I'm a student worker. I work in the recreation department. Um, and I've definitely kind of experienced the struggle of making 11 to $12 an hour. Um, so how can student workers get more involved in this fight? And where do you see them in this kind of negotiation as well? Um, well, I definitely see them... Um and I, and I have seen them at all of our actions. Um, usually we have members from USAS out. Um, the Fight for 15 has been present at all of our actions. It was part of and is part of our common good bargaining articles. Uh, the university administration is refusing to bargain with us over it because um, they don't have to. And yeah, that's for us, that's that's not a great excuse that you don't that there's no law forcing you to bargain with us over something, but there's no law prohibiting it. So it is really an active choice on their part um, to not address this with us. Um, but yes, that the it is it is especially egregious uh, to me, and and something that um, that we've tried to highlight on the Newark campus and on the Camden campus, and it might come to New Brunswick. But we've been having food drives um, for the student food pantries because if we want to talk about contradictions, your employer recognizing you do not make enough money to eat and setting up a charity for you to supplement that food largely donated to by the community um yeah another another source of shame on on the part of Rutgers that they will put uh I think Barchi had put like two million dollars into establishing uh what are probably tax write off <laughs> charity food charity food pantries for students but not but not willing to pay students a living wage I think that what I would hope students do is one, um, pay just pay attention to this fight, and also um, bring bring the things you're fighting for to the picket line with us. Um, should should a strike occur, but at all of our actions, including the April 9th Board of Governors action, bring your fight with ours so that we can highlight the solidarity between us. Um, so. Let's kind of get into like the strike developments that have been happening recently. Um, as of what you all three know right now, where do the negotiations stand at this moment? Because I understand that the university keeps continuing to say that they're negotiating in, quote, good faith, whatever that means. Um, (laughs) And um, I know that the strike authorization did produce some gains, I would say, um, in terms of negotiations. Um, What does it stand right now? So, so... The short answer is I, I don't know uh, all of the details, uh, and people can contact. I just want to mention that students who are interested in getting involved can contact, just look Google Rutgers Union 
or uh, Rutgers One and and call people and and find out how you can get involved. Uh, insofar as as the 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 demands and, and the progress, one of the reasons that I don't know what is going on in detail is that uh, the the uh, administration forbade. Uh, attendance by non-negotiators at the negotiating table a couple of months ago. So prior to that, people could come and it was fully transparent and you could hear what was going on. And then the uh, administration felt that, uh, you know, all for all the words they say about transparency, maybe that wasn't quite such a good thing. And they said that they would no longer negotiate and they would walk out of the room if there were non-negotiators present. And so uh, my understanding is that uh, since there has been talk of a strike, there has been some increased movement on some of the issues. But the details I can't say because I'm not in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, my understanding is that the, the movement we that we have had at the bargaining table is um, around non-economic issues. So I think there there has been um, some of our some of our other articles because that's the other thing. A contract involves a lot more than salary. It does involve our working conditions across the board. And so there has been um, some movement on the non-economic issues, but um, there's zero, for at least for the, the, the grads and, and full-time faculty, um, we're, not, we're not moving on, uh, on salary. Mm-hmm. One other issue that I will just bring up <clears throat> is that uh, one, one of the issues that uh, the university, to my understanding, has refused to bargain on is something called Infosylum. Yeah. So uh, th- this, this administration has been very, um, very keen on uh, hiring consulting organizations to spending money on consulting organizations and on external software and this and that rather than doing things uh, in-house. So they introduced Pearson Online. They they uh, they brought Canvas in for teaching to replace uh, Sakai. They hired Boston Consulting to decide, you know, how the university should be constructed and, and so forth. Well, Infosylum is <clears throat> along the same line. So it's an external organization is funded to schedule all of our courses. And uh, speaking as a faculty member, uh, what that has meant was that rather than being able to say, gee, uh, I have traditionally taught on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in the afternoons because that fits with my research and, and other schedules, I now can set aside a block of 35 hours during the week during which at any time uh, courses can be scheduled. And so, as an example, one of our fellow departments uh, teaches uh, uh, people who work in industry and therefore want to take courses in the evening, and Infosylum scheduled all of them at 8 in the morning, right? And it did this because it runs according to an algorithm that minimizes intersections between courses, and the way to minimize intersections between courses is to spread them out as much as possible between 8 a.m. and 11 p.m., and that means that there are going to be a lot of courses that used to be at a convenient time that this algorithm has decided is not going to be convenient. The university says that that's not a bargaining issue. Why? Because they already decided that they're going to spend the money on this Infosylum thing, whether it works or not. And I think for students in particular, <laughs> uh, besides the fact that it does sound like it was invented by a Bond villain, <laughs> it it I don't understand why anyone would be proposing such a name for uh, 
something so clearly evil. <laughs> but um, but but to be aware that it is going to be posited as a, um, a a bad solution to a lot of a vaguely bad solution to a lot of different problems that the university does not want to spend money on. So I know that there's a lot of push with student government to get reform and more money put into <coughs> transit and busing. Um, they're going to claim that InfoSylum will be a solution to that. It will not. It is about making the schedule to have the least amount of conflicts between classes. Um, if you are someone who is working and you're an undergrad, which you in all likelihood are, um, if you if there's particular days where your department normally doesn't have classes, let's say Fridays are pretty generally a non-class day, that's gone with InfoSylum. There's going to be a lot more 8 a.m. Friday classes for people. Um, so just really paying attention to, um, to InfoSylum is maybe not reached the students as much, but I would, I would recommend they pay attention to this, this particular move by uh, administration. No, because I've definitely gotten emails about the new scheduling system that's being put in place and how it is trying to address the problem of busing between different campuses during the day. But again, as what you're saying, this isn't really addressing that issue. It's more addressing the conflict between classes, which isn't really that big of an issue for most students. It's more just the transit in between campuses. Um, so again, that's just making it more difficult for both faculty and students. So definitely an issue that students can also pay attention to. Uh, I, I just want to mention with respect to buses, you know, our, our buses say Rutgers on them, but it's a private company. Mm -hmm. So this also was outsourced to a private company. So if you have complaints about the buses, and we have raised complaints about buses to President Barchi, he says, well, that's not on us. It's a private company who's doing that. And mm -hmm. so when you're waiting for a bus, you might want to give some thought to that. There, there really is no one you can complain to because it has to go through a second company. Mm -hmm. I think, James, uh, what's important to keep in mind here is that behind this entire fight, you know, everything that we're talking about is is a deeper discussion about the quality of the degree at Rutgers. And what we've witnessed recently, certainly as we pushed, as the university pushed uh, to be part of the Big Big Ten and launched a number of initiatives to, to kind of reach, you know, into that other uh, level, uh, what we're seeing um, is that we're failing to keep pace. And when we pushed in many ways to build beautiful new buildings, I mean, if you walk down College Avenue, it looks like a, an, an entirely different space than it did five years ago. And, uh, and it's beautiful. Um, and um, uh, you, you see the Honors College, which is a terrific new building, and that's beautiful. And that's also a terrific... Uh, concept, but but in the honors college you have adjunct professors teaching, mm -hmm. and so you've made this leap as a university to the Big Ten, and you've you've done a lot of things that uh, uh, look pretty, perhaps. But if you're not paying attention to the teachers and the students, you're not performing the core function of the university. Then you, you're the quality of the degree is going to diminish. And look, the people of New Jersey are not stupid. They'll see it, they'll recognize it, they'll move on, they'll go to a different uh, to a different university. And I think there's a real risk here when you have, for example, you know, um, 
70% contingent workforce, there's a real risk that you've reached a tipping point, that you're really jeopardizing the quality of the degree. And that's what we're fighting for. Mm-hmm. That's what we're fighting for in all of these initiatives to ensure that, that Rutgers, the quality of the degree at Rutgers remains the standard that, uh, uh, that it should remain. And kind of going off that point, all three of you can answer this too. What is your vision of the future beyond this negotiation? What is your hope to see Rutgers moving forward, including faculty, including students in this process? Where do you want the most gains to be made? I mean, where I would want, I mean, broadly, I would I would want to see a major shift or an, a, a revolution, I guess, in priorities. Um, what is it that Rutgers is prioritizing? At the moment, it is prioritizing profit. Profit is at the center of its decisions. Um, when they say they don't have money, what they mean is they don't have money below the bottom line they are willing to spend on students. They have $800 million in unrestricted reserves. They add $40 million to that every year. They make $50 million in profit a year. There is absolutely, when they, when they uh, a student that, that I talked to had said, Rutgers acts broke, though. Yeah, they <laughs> act broke, but they're not broke. Um, I would like to see a major, major shift in priorities. I would like to see the university's academic mission become central to its decision making, um, and that it it really be it it really actually put its money where it, where its mouth is. If it says that it cares about having diverse faculty, where's the money to recruit and retain diverse faculty? If it says it cares um, about the the hunger of its students, pay your students a living wage. I want to see them. Um, to see the shift in priorities in the long run. I, I love that comment, so yeah. the, 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 to see a revolution. And, and, and I, I, I have to agree. And I'll just emphasize, I love uh, standing in front of my class and looking, you know, the students here are the university's best asset. Mm-hmm. You know, and to, I feel like I'm in a very special place on this campus just to witness and everyone, the students I work with, they hold each other up. Mm-hmm. They're so uh, supportive and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a modern dynamic that you just will not find elsewhere. You know, you just don't see that elsewhere. And I tell them that, like, cherish this because this isn't what it looks like out there. And so that is a tremendous asset that we're not, taking advantage of like we, we I learned so much from my students so they are revolutionary what they are doing is revolutionary we deserve we ought to give them you know uh, the support that they need and you know frankly we ought to be more like them yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll just add that that I would really like to see in the future Rutgers be or become number one in some things like education and research. That's not what we are number one at right now. We are number one among the Big Ten in administrative bloat, in the amount that we spend, that's just a fact, on on administration. And we are number one in the Big Ten in hiring of PTLs rather than full-time employees. Those are the two things that we are number one at right now. I'd like us to be number one at education and research. All right, thank you all three for coming here. Uh, Troy Schrimbrat, Teresa Politano, and Sweeley Smith, all from Rutgers AUP. This is a great conversation. 
This has been Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum right here on 90.3 The Core. Live from the Livingston campus of Rutgers University. This is RLC WVPH in Piscataway. 90.3 The Core. Independent community radio from Piscataway High School and Rutgers University. Learn more at thecore.fm. Many voices. One station. This is 90.3 The Core.